The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, let's open our Bibles, if you will, to the book of Romans, chapter 6. And our study tonight is the continuation of our Living for Jesus series. And we're talking about specifically how that Christians can have victory in their lives. And the victory, of course, is about victory over sin. Now, in our Sunday morning sermon series, we've, we've been discussing the wiles of the devil. And in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul describes the Christian life as warfare. And he said that we fight against enemies that are in an unseen world. We fight against principalities and powers and against spiritual wickedness in high places. And then there are other places in Scripture where Paul addressed the same theme. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse number 4, uh, he speaks of weapons of warfare. And then in other places, still other places, he says that Christians are soldiers. We're, we're like soldiers in the army of Christ and... We're not to entangle ourselves with the affairs of this world. And then other writers, such as John in the Revelation, uh, he talks about how in those last days that evil raises its ugly head, those days are filled with darkness, and there is literal war, and there is actual bloodshed. And then in Revelation chapter 12, we have that memorable scripture in the passage that talks about war in heaven when Satan and his angels are cast down to the earth. So there's no doubt about it. Uh, the Christians are in a fight. There are spiritual battles that we fight every day. And the goal of our sanctification is that we would have victory over Satan and sin. And since we are in a spiritual battle, we have to use these spiritual weapons that the Bible describes. Now, 2 Corinthians 10 and also Ephesians 6 tell us that we have to learn the tactics of how to fight these battles. And so soldiers, just like soldiers trained for physical warfare, God's children have to be trained for spiritual warfare. And that's what we do. That's what we do here as we bring the Word of God to you each week. It's to train you for spiritual warfare. Now, there are many people who think that what, uh, what the church should do, what the pastor should do, is every time that he gets in the pulpit, uh, you need to preach an evangelistic sermon. Well, there's nothing wrong with evangelistic sermons, and we do need to preach those. But the preaching for the saints in the church is not primarily for that purpose. Uh, the saints of God don't need to hear continually the gospel that they have already believed. We do need to be reminded of that, but that's not what we're here for. We're here to be trained to go out and fight this warfare that we're in. How to, draw, how to become stronger for the Lord Jesus Christ and to build upon the foundation of faith that we have, not to keep laying those same foundations over and over again. So we have, this, uh, we have this, these uh, daily struggles in spiritual warfare, and God wants us to be prepared to fight those battles. I was thinking about this as I was uh, looking over the sermon, that in uh, World War II, when Nazi Germany was encroaching upon Stalingrad uh, uh, there on the Eastern Front, the, the Soviets thrust a rifle, a weapon, into the hands of just about anybody that could pull a trigger. And so one of the things that they did, they would just hand children guns 
And they, they were so, they, they had to repel the invasion that was coming from Nazi Germany on the front, and they're trying to save Stalingrad, and so they thrust that rifle into the hands of just about anybody. But in truth, for those people, it would be very, very hard to have confidence uh, and to have hope for survival dependent upon untrained soldiers. I mean, you can't have a whole lot of hope in an untrained soldier. Our country spends millions, billions of dollars every year in equipping our uh, armed forces and keeping up with all the latest weapons. And I admit that there are times when I don't feel very confident when my defense is dependent upon limp-wristed, cross-dressing soldiers. But I'll stop there before I get too deep into that. But I do admit that there, there are times that... Uh, we may not want to be in the fight that God has put us into, and we're despondent about it and upset about it, but the scriptures are true. Even the Philistines knew this, that if you're going to fight, you have to be strong and quit you like men. You've got to fight. You've got to get into the battle. So God doesn't want you to be one who lays out of the battle. Now, my point here is that we must be trained. We must be prepared to fight battles. Uh, it's no less true for a Christian than it is for somebody who's in physical warfare. And victory will not be yours. You won't win unless you're ready for the warfare. And I'm afraid there are members of our church that apparently aren't ready. Uh, by their testimony, it appears that sin rules over them when it should not. Now here's what Paul has to say about it in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. He said, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Now there we see that Paul characterizes sin as a ruler. It's a conqueror that enslaves. And he says, let not sin therefore reign. And that's one of those places where we do have to look again and see why does he say therefore? What is therefore therefore? And the reason it's there is because he's just finished discussing how that Christ died for sin and Christ arose and that sin is defeated. And since you are a believer in him... You died with him, and when you died with him, therefore, if his death conquered sin, and you are in him, then you can live in the victory of its defeat. Now, we thank God for this, that we know that in the end, Christ is going to have the final victory over sin. That's what we're looking at as we study uh, these past few weeks in the destruction of the devil. God, or Christ, is going to have final victory over sin. So whether you win all of your spiritual battles... It's kind of immaterial. You need to fight them. You need to work to win them. But eventually, Christ is going to have the victory over all. And we rest in him and we'll have the victory with him. One of the things that I do, uh, I talked to you about this morning and praying for the kingdom of God, that I pray almost daily that God's kingdom will come that, so that we can be done with this battle uh, against sin. And one of the reasons that I pray that way is because preachers, I think, battle sin, uh, have more trouble with sin. Satan has, gives us more trouble, perhaps, than he does any other people. I think preachers have to battle sin harder than anyone else. We battle discouragements. 
more than anyone else. We battle disloyalty often more than other people because you, you stay in this job very long. You can find out that there are church members that will turn on you and they aren't loyal to you. And so it's in those kinds of times that we have to think like the Apostle Paul when he said, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. And I read that from Paul, and at times I think that it's really not fair for us to compare ourselves to Paul, and that's because we've never gone through anything like the Apostle Paul went through. And so what do we draw from a scripture like that when he talks about all the things that have happened to him? Well, surely we ought to be able to draw this, that if the grace of Jesus Christ was sufficient to help Paul through all that he went through, and we don't experience anything like what he went through, then surely God's grace is enough for us. That God's grace is going to take us through, and he'll see us through, and we will have the victory. So God's grace is always sufficient. Now, eventually, the world is going to be purged from sin, but that's then, and this is now. And so, in the present, the war goes on, and every day is a relentless fight for purity and honesty and holiness. Satan is not ready to give up that fight, and he's going to throw every trick that he has in the book. Everything's going to be thrown at us every while. Every wickedness that he can perpetrate on us will be done, and the perpetrators of it are going to be against us every single day. He is a powerful enemy. We've seen that. We recognize that. But we also know that God has all authority in heaven and in earth. He is greater than Satan and all of his demons. And Christ is on our side. We have no excuse not to win. We can win this battle. Now, last time, a couple of weeks ago, we started uh, this part of our, of our study with an examination of sin that we need to know how to deal with sin. And so we discussed in the first part of our outline how sin develops. How sin develops. And James gave us an outline for it. Now, I'd like you to turn to James chapter 1, and we'll take just a quick look at this again. And it's always helpful when scriptures provide their own outline. If you ever decide that you're going to preach, you'll be so thankful that you read a scripture and it's all laid out for you there. And it's just simple. You just follow it down through and see what it means. But James gave us an outline here. And in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, he talks to us about how sin develops. And he says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Then he starts the outline. He says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now what James has given us there uh, are stages of sin. From the inception of sin in the mind to the commission of it in the act, that it starts with temptation when it's not yet sin, and so perhaps we could say that temptation is the embryo of sin. All the potential for sin is there, but not yet been born. But temptation itself is oh so close to sin. 
I mean, we're right there. We're right on the verge. The temptation is there. And if we're not very careful to deal with temptation right away and to get the temptation out of our mind, stopping it almost as soon as it starts, then it'll pick up its pace until it transforms itself into the act. It's like a butterfly that bursts out of a cocoon and sin comes out in all of its depraved radiance, or if you want to say it's depraved decadence, sin comes out, it's born out of that temptation and desire and opportunity. Now, temptation transforms into the act of sin, and once that's done, there's not any way that you can take it back. You can't undo sin. Now, I wish that people understood that more. You can't undo what you did. You can't do it. Sin is never benign, and sin always has consequences. And the Word of God says the consequences of it always, the consequence is death. Now, I know some say, well, that's not true. No, the consequence of sin is not always death, because I'm a Christian. And since I'm a Christian, I know that I'm going to live forever. I'm not going to die. Well, we all know this, that if Christ doesn't come before uh, we die. We are going to die all physically or we're going to die. But if, if what you have in mind is spiritual death, that you're not going to die a spiritual death, well, the only way that you escape spiritual death is because somebody had to die. And we all know who that somebody is, don't we? Somebody had to die in order for us to escape spiritual death. So the only thing that stands between you and spiritual death is Jesus Christ. And so he's the one that had to die. And so, yes, whether you're saved or you're lost, sin brings death. And if you think that that doesn't matter, and you say, well, at least it's not me that has to die, and sin's okay, at least I don't have to die, then I would have a hard time believing that you're a Christian at all. You know, it kind of reminds me of Hezekiah when Isaiah came to him, and he said, Hezekiah, because you have shown uh, the, the enemy in Babylon your treasures, which is what Hezekiah did. He showed them everything that he had. Since you have showed them your treasures, then your sin is going to be visited upon your children, upon those who come later. The kingdom is going to be destroyed. Babylon's going to take it over. And what did Hezekiah say? Well, at least it's not me. It's okay that it doesn't happen to me in my lifetime. And so he says... If it's on them, that's all right. Isn't it good if grace and truth come in my days? And so Hezekiah was a good king, no doubt about that. But he had a sure, surely did have a poor attitude about this. So if you can feel good about Christ's death and you can just go on sinning because you know that you're safe and you're secure in your salvation, then I would say you're probably not saved. If you don't agonize because of what your sin has done to Christ, if you don't agonize about that, then I'm not sure that you're one that Christ actually died for. What Christ did was to deliver us from sin, and that's what he will do. So God's people are not going to live that way. They don't want to continue in their sin. They hate sin because of what it did to the Savior. And so if you can feel differently from that, then you can have at your sin and say it really doesn't matter, then you might want to stop calling yourself a Christian. And so we see there in James how sin develops. There is temptation, and then the act, and then the consequences. We know what it is. We know how it arises. We know what it's going to do to us. And now we need to find out what are we going to do about it. How are we going to stop sinning? How are we going to have victory over our sin? So that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Secondly is how sin is defeated. How can we defeat sin? Well, ultimately... I think all of you know that sin is only overcome in one way, and that's by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
But the Holy Spirit does not eliminate the possibility of sin. And he doesn't stop you from sinning without your cooperation. Now, in our study of Christian growth, I talked about the doctrine of perseverance, that God insists that we strive, that God says that we must endure. He says with patience, you have to keep holding on. And so, in short, the accomplishment of our sanctification requires diligent hard work as the means of preserving us. Now, as Peter said, make your calling and your election sure. Or as Paul said in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the Holy Spirit is the one who provides that power. He guards and he guarantees our safekeeping. But just as God says that you need to do this, he has determined also to work in you, within you, to accomplish that purpose. Now, saving grace, we say, is sovereign. That exists only in the realm of what God does. But sanctifying grace has two parts to it. And that is, it is both persevering and preserving. Now, we talk about preserving and sanctification. That's fully God's part. God's doing all of that. When we talk about perseverance in our sanctification, that is man's part. We are required to go on, to keep on, to, to stay steady in this, to endure. That's man's part. But we also understand that both man's part and God's part is all God's because God is the one who enables all of that. He, he enables us to, uh, us to do that. So God, we know what God is fully capable of. We understand what he's capable of. So what do we have to do in our end to persevere? What do we have to do to overcome sin? And we're just going to talk about a few things here tonight that will help us in that area. So what would we do first? Well, I would say first what we must do is to change our desires. And this is a heading that I think you could see can only be done by those who have received Christ by faith. We're talking about people that are born again. These are those that have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. There's no one without regeneration that has the ability to change the desire to sin. And not only do you not have the ability to do it, you don't want to do it. There's no desire for you to change your desires about sin. Now, I'd love to take time to, to spend on that doctrine because it is a core foundational truth. It's core and foundational to the study of God's grace. But sadly, as elementary as that is to our understanding, preachers still preach that dead, hardened, depraved sinners can change their minds. They can change their minds by their own will. And to me, that's a terribly disappointing thing for something that's so important to right understanding to, of how helpless that we are and how much that we need God's grace, that that is a doctrine that could be missed. But it is. We need God's grace simply for this. We can't help ourselves. We don't have any ability to change our minds. Titus 1.15 says, Under the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. Now, pay attention to that scripture. Apply that as it should be applied. Those that are unbelieving, to them, nothing is pure. There's nothing good in what they do. Their mind and their conscience is defiled. Jeremiah is more graphic about it with his description of the same problem. He says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. That's a strong verse. 
But so is this one that Jesus gave in Luke 6, 43. For a good tree bringeth forth, not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Now what we have there in those scriptures is the language of impossibility. And I don't know how that you, you recognize, or reconcile those verses with an opinion that man by his will can choose what is good when Jesus and Paul and Jeremiah said that it can't be done. Uh, your faith is a good thing, isn't it? Faith is a good thing. How do you choose faith from a depraved heart? You see, you can't change spots of a sinful nature. How do you pull good fruit off of a dead tree? It can't be done. And yet, most deny that foundational truth. And so they say, oh yes, you can choose good. You can decide to do something that's really the best good, actually the highest good, because there is no good that is higher than trusting in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine anything that's better than trusting Christ? Well, there isn't anything better than that. And yet the Scripture says, there is none good, no, not one. There's an impossibility here. You can't choose the highest good when you can't do good at all. David said that. And I suppose that when David said this, there is none good, no, not one, that when he said that, that he had in mind even the smallest good that a person could do. The Bible sets forth that you can't do anything, even the smallest good you can't do. And so how would it be possible out of a depraved heart to do the highest good? And that is to trust Jesus Christ. I think... If you can't do the smallest good, you certainly can't do the highest good. So somebody needs to rethink their ability to interpret the Bible. So I can take this on the authority of Israel's greatest king, upon the authority of the king of kings, upon one of the greatest prophets that we have in the Old Testament, upon the authority of one who was the greatest theological thinker of the New Testament, the greatest missionary of the New Testament, who said these things are impossible. You cannot change your desires unless God has put it in your heart to do so. God has to change the depraved will to enable you for righteous good. So we can just put it this way. Your will is just not good enough. Your will is just not good enough for God. But I'm not here to talk about the lost tonight. This message is about the saved. And all of us are in a battle against sin. And a saved person has been given the ability to change his desires. In fact, if, as a saved person, you are required to change your desires. You, you must have victory over sin. This is demanded of us. You must conquer it. The security of our salvation does not give us a license to sin. It enables us to have victory over it. Don't make that mistake and get those things confused. Because once we've been washed in the blood of Christ, we have become new creatures in Jesus Christ. And so new desires are developed. But I do need to return to this thought for just a minute. Do you understand the profundity of 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says that we are new creatures in Christ? A new creature is one who has been made new, and it's the one who has been made new that can choose Christ. That's because the old creature doesn't have any power. He has no power in the spiritual world, so it's the new creature that chooses the Lord. And if the old creature could do it, why do we need the Holy Spirit? What's his purpose? And so you see a doctrine of the will that says that you can choose Christ out of the old nature actually nullifies the work of the Holy Spirit. So what you're saying is that a man can be godly and righteous before God ever enables him to it. How can that happen? How can the Holy Spirit 
do it. How I mean, how, how, how can, uh, what does the Holy Spirit do, rather, that if it's not to change the sinful disposition of the will? That's his purpose. That's what he's doing. That's how he's working in us. That's how we choose righteousness, because he has changed the disposition of the will. Now, pardon me for all that. Let me return to the message. Romans chapter 6, though, tells us that we must suppress our old desires and we must develop new desires. Now, that seems to me that what he must be talking about is something that we do after our salvation, not before. Old desires do not change to new desires until the Holy Spirit has done his work. Now, we have the ability by the power of God to do this. Now, in, uh, in the first part, when I was talking about temptation... Last week, uh, we talked about how that temptation turns into desire, and desire motivates sin. Desire is the factor that we have to work on, and our desire has to be a different desire, or we'll find ourselves back in the old way. Now, let me pause here for just a minute. The desire of Christians uh, are changed, but that doesn't mean that we are never going to fall back into sin again. This happens. Uh, uh, some time ago, a few years ago, there was a local pastor who wrote that he didn't believe in perseverance. And he said, I don't believe that because it means Christians can never fall into deep sin. Well, he misunderstood the doctrine like he does many others. But a Christian can fall into terrible sins, just like David fell into sin. Our confession of faith says it is possible for Christians to fall into deep sin. But it also says this, a real believer in Jesus Christ cannot stay there. A real believer in Christ does not make sin the habit of his life. And so if you have a habit of living in sin all the time, mark it down. You can't be a Christian. That can't happen to a Christian. So a, a Christian can fall into sin, but he's not going to stay in sin. Now that's John's argument in 1 John chapter 3. The authors of the epistles knew their converts could get into bad sin. Paul saw that in the Corinthian church. Um, Peter saw it when uh, he wrote in his epistles that people fall into sin. John knew it was possible. He wrote about the beliefs of Gnosticism. And here are people who believe that the, the flesh is sinful, but the spirit is not sinful. And the, and the flesh doesn't have any effect on the spirit. And so we can just go ahead and sin any way we want to in our flesh. Just go ahead and do it. John knew Christians can fall into these kinds of heresies and into sin. So he encouraged people not to sin. Jude saw that. He did the same thing. James saw it. And the point of it all is that a Christian is not going to live there forever. He's not going to stay there. It can't be the habit. And that's because we've been saved from it. Now, two scriptures that emphasize what real Christians do is Romans 12, 1 and 2 and Galatians 5, 24. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And then Galatians 5.24, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lust. So we have to change our desires. All right, we got to do it. How do we do it? Well, we have to saturate our minds with things that are good and wholesome. And so what is better to saturate your mind with that is good and wholesome than the Word of God? Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin 
against thee. That's not a trick verse. I think there are people who think, well, that must be some kind of a trick here. This is not a trick verse. I mean, do you realize that if you hide the Word of God in your heart, you're not going to sin? What did Jesus do every time that Satan threw the temptations at him? He came at him time after time, and every single time, Jesus threw back the Word of God at Satan. And Satan came and he tempted Jesus in all areas. that are the, head, the fountainheads of all temptations. He tempted him in areas of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And Jesus resisted it all through the Word of God. Every time he comes back with the Word of God. Now that tells us something. If he used the Word of God, don't you think that's a model for you? Don't you think you can use the same method and the same thing will happen? So what the Word of God does is changes from a love of sin to a hatred of sin. And whenever you see a Christian that struggles with overcoming sin, the next question you ought to ask is, how much time do you spend in the Word of God? And I promise you, you spend no time there, you'll have difficulty with sin. Psalm 119 actually turns out to be a perfect antidote for sin. Listen to the 104th verse. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And you read that psalm as we've done these past Sunday mornings, that that psalm is about the value of God's word. And over a hundred and through 176 verses, the psalmist magnifies the word. And so we have to wonder, how do we as Christians ignorantly, stupidly, I might say, I don't think ignorance is the word here, stupid is the word here, why are we so stupid to have the Word of God so close to us and so available to us, it'll keep us out of sin, and we don't read it? Why is that? It's got to be a stupid thing for a Christian to do. The Bible is accessible, why not use it? You can't love the Word and love sin. It can't happen. Oil and water don't mix. The book separates us from sin. But I want to step it up just a little bit and to emphasize what Peter said about it. He said that the knowledge of Christ will make you a virtuous Christian. And where do we get the knowledge of Christ? Not the History Channel. Don't go there. The place to get knowledge of Christ is where? His Word. Now, Paul made, said this important verse in Philippians 4, verse 8. He says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones' exposition of this verse because he said this verse describes what Jesus is. That when you read this, you are reading the virtues of Christ. And when you accept Christ and you fill your mind with him, how are you going to continue in sin? There was no sin in him, and so if he's in you, then you should not have a problem dealing with sin. What happens to sin if he's in you? Sin is dispelled. So a really good suggestion for changing your desires is to get into the Word of God. Study the Word, delight in the Word. You know, one thing that really gladdens a preacher's heart when, I, when I've heard people say that they have a renewed interest in reading the Word of God. I love to hear that. And then when I hear it come out in questions that are asked for, 
for instance, in the forum class or in our Wednesday night class, when those questions come out, then I know that people have been reading the Word of God, and that's just a thrilling thing because I know this, that fellowship with God is developed out of reading His Word and studying the Word, and communication with God is developed out of that, and you're going to grow through that. So in essence, your closeness to the Lord comes from the Word. And do you think that God didn't know that when he kept inspiring his writers to talk about the virtues of his word? It's so many times, it's over and over in the scriptures how valuable the word of God is. So don't, let's, let's don't be ignorant of the word or we're going to be stuck in sin. A few weeks ago, Lou gave me a, a note that Joanne put in her Bible. Uh, she wrote a note about how much that the scriptures meant to her and he brought that to me and he shared it with me. And we all know the medical problems that Joanne had. Uh, she had a liver transplant. She had a kidney transplant. Much of her later life was spent in sickness as her body was still fighting the rejection of those organs. And when I read Joanne's note, I, I sat down to read that, and I, I was fully convinced, well, here's a note that had to have been written sometime during her, her sickness, that I assumed that she had discovered the value of what the Word of God could do for her during that time and that she'd learned to be content in her sickness because that she had come to rely upon the Word of God. But then Lou said, when I asked him about that, Lou said, no. She wrote that note when she was only 19 years old. She had learned the value of God's Word at an early age, and then later on, when she needed a source of strength, she knew where she could go. She was able to go to the Word of God. And I began to think about that and, and think about how magnificent it would be if we would see our young people in here with notes stuck in their Bible that talked about how much they value God's Word because they've been reading it and studying it. What a wonderful thing that would be because that's a lesson that you're not going to forget later in life. And here's the problem with many of us. Some of us are old and we haven't yet learned to appreciate the Word of God. And the Bible gets no use except for those an hour or two that you bring it to church on Sunday morning. And that's a tragedy. And have you ever thought how that belies your faith? In the Word is the knowledge of Jesus. And the Word has the power to keep us away from sin. So how do we ignore it? But as I talk to you about the Word, I do realize that development in the Word takes time. Love for the Bible is a cultivated love. Uh, studying the Bible and getting a good understanding of it is a process. It's actually a long process. And sometimes people get discouraged about that because it's not easy. It's, it's, it's hard work to, to learn the Bible. You have to put your mind to it. And as you read every day and study every day, things become clearer to you. And so while you're in the process of changing your desires and you're learning how to study the Word when you're not yet to the place that it's done everything, well, it can keep helping you, but it's not gotten to the place that you think that you're really conquering sin the way that you want to, well, while you're in the process of learning the Word of God, there are other things that you can do. We don't want you to be despondent, discouraged about it, so we'll look at other things that you can do to help you to overcome sin while you're developing your love for the Word. So the next thing that you can do is to limit your opportunities. Sin develops out of desire and opportunity. And so while you're working on changing the desires, concentrate on limiting the opportunities to act on your old desires. So you don't invite temptation in by, by going to the wrong places 
And you don't do it by making the wrong friends and by looking at the wrong things. You limit those opportunities. You know, a few weeks ago we were talking about the three little monkeys, the monkeys see no evil, uh, hear no evil, speak no evil. David said, uh, he says, I set no wicked thing before my eyes. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. That's what you have to do. You've got to guard yourself, limit those opportunities. And you need to do that not only in the public part of your life, but you need to do it in the private part of your life. You know, it's very easy to get into deep sin when you think that nobody's going to find out about it. Sin is so easy today, isn't it? You know, it used to be if you're going to get into some really bad sin, you had to go to the bad side of town. I mean, you actually had to make a trip over there to find it if you're going to get into really bad sin. You don't have to do that anymore. You can come to Berean Baptist Church and sit in the pew and get into sin. Things that you look at. Now, primarily I'm talking about your cell phone, but you might be looking at some other things in here that will get you into sin. Be careful where you look. But this is a problem. People in their private lives, using their computers, their phones, and so on, they can fall into sin. You know, a few months ago when the Ashley Madison scandal broke, it was found out that there were some prominent preachers and theologians that had visited that site. And one of them I was very disappointed in because it was a man that had a huge, he was a huge proponent of family and had written books on family values. But we need to understand this, that regardless of the secrecy that you think that you have in your private life, you can't escape God. You can't escape the all-seeing eye of God. That's what David said. He's going to be everywhere you are. No matter where you go, God is with you. God doesn't find out what you did. God knows what you did. He knows all about it. And so you think you've escaped it, you haven't escaped it. God sees it. Now, it's a bad thing for people to find out what you did. It's bad, much, much worse to know that God knows what you did. So your private life will get you, and so you have to limit the opportunities in your private life. But let's, let's switch to the other side a little bit. Let's talk about the public side. Limit your opportunities by staying away from people that encourage you to sin. This is an easy thing to do. It's real easy to follow the crowd and do what they do because they're your partners in crime. If you've got somebody to support you, you'll do it. You know, I was just reading today, this afternoon, uh, this just came out in the USA Today today, that uh, in Louisville, right outside of Louisville, Kentucky, they had like 2,000 young people in one of the malls there that were just rioting and just causing all kinds of trouble. They had to shut down the mall early and cart these kids away to get them off the premises. Well, it's easy to get into a mob mentality. You hang around the wrong people, you're going to do the wrong things. And as parents, we're constantly concerned about that. We want to keep our kids away from the bad kids. We don't want them hanging around with the bad kids. And I think I said this in another message. Sometimes we don't understand our kids are the bad kids. They're, they're, they're the ones that nobody else should be hanging around with. But Satan blinds our minds to that as he does so many other things. Satan is very deceptive. And so he can do things like make you think that your lost friends are better than your Christian friends. Oh, you don't know how many times I've heard this. How much my lost friends care about me. And those hypocrites at the church, they don't really care about me at all. Oh, I've heard that so many times. You know, sometimes maybe we don't care as much as we should as church members. Maybe we don't. But I can tell you this, you're never, ever, ever going to find improvement by making friends with the world. It can't happen. 
Lost people are instigators of sin. That's because their minds are depraved. And haven't we learned that ourselves from our own sinful condition? We know what we were like. What we thought was good is no good. And eventually it proves itself to be no good. This is what the psalmist said. Psalm 101. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. Doesn't the Bible say that all people are liars? Isn't verse 6 better than verse 7? Paul had another way of saying this in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. He said, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Now that's an interesting verse. That's a very interesting verse because Paul actually quoted that from a secular poet. A secular poet that Paul quotes from when he says this. And, and he puts it this way. It's like, you ought to know this. I mean, you ought to know this because this is such a common proverb. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows that bad company has a corrupting influence on the mind. Calvin said, Here, therefore, Paul, in opposition to this, warns us that we must guard against evil communication as we would against deadly poison, because insinuating them secretly into our minds, they straightway corrupt our whole life. So these are two areas that we have to work on. Work on changing desires. Work on diminishing opportunities for sin. Don't let temptation turn into sin. And I might add this, and we could have made another point on this as well. Limit opportunities to sin, but also maximize opportunities for godliness. Let me make that one easy for you. Go to church. Go to church. Be in the church services. Don't miss church services. Hear the word of God. Now, the third thing that you need to do to defeat sin is to exercise self-control. Now, that's called temperance in 2 Peter 1, verse 6. It's not likely that you can limit all of your opportunities to sin. That's because the devil has a cornucopia of all kinds of opportunities. So, as Paul would say here, the thing that you need to do is to possess your vessel. And he meant by that, get hold of yourself. Get hold of yourself. Control yourself. Stop yourself before you sin. Now, we covered that while we were studying 2 Peter 1. We control ourselves in one way. We have a power of self-control. It's not actually self. It's the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That gives us the ability of self-control, and we can rely on that power. You're never going to do it alone. You can't do it alone. Your old nature is there, and the old nature will drag you down. And so God has given us an ability of self-control. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Now, God has a plan for dealing with all sin that's floating around out there. There is no sin that God is not able to deal with. And then God also knows the limitations that you have. He knows the stages of your development. As the psalmist said, he knows your frame. He knows how much you can hold. He knows how much that you can stand. And so God helps you in that area. He helps you in areas that you are not capable, which is all areas really, that you're not capable of taking care of. You're not going to do it, but he can do it. And what he'll do is at the time that you need, that you need that extra help, he'll give you the push 
to get over the problem that you have. But he only does that as you yield yourself to the Holy Spirit's control of your life. And so you, des- you yield to him rather than yielding to your old desires. Well, let me finish with this. And this might, this might not seem to fit at this point, but I think that it does. The reality is you're going to sin. I'm going to sin. And so sin's going to find us out. What are we going to do when we sin? That's next. What do we do? Obtain forgiveness. Now, this is very important for victory. Many Christians go far too long and far too deep in sin without stopping to ask for forgiveness. Now, when you're saved, you understand that you have received forgiveness for the eternal penalty of your sin. You understand that. You don't have to worry about that part anymore. You don't need any other forgiveness uh, in that area because judicially you have been forgiven of the guilt of sin. So you may ask, well, what need is there then of further forgiveness? Well, we need it because without daily cleansing from sin, we ruin the closeness of our fellowship with God. Now, our study here is about living for Jesus, and you won't feel that you want to do it that you care about doing it unless you know that Jesus is close to you. God never forsakes his children, but that doesn't mean he's never unhappy with them. He can become very unhappy with them. And that's pretty clear when the scripture says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Grieving the Holy Spirit, that's terrible discontent with what we do. And so here's what happens when, when Christians are disobedient. God doesn't move away from us. We move away from him. You see, there's not anything that we need more than God when we've entered into sin. We need nothing more, uh, nothing, nothing more than him or more than him when Satan has made us the whipping boy. We need the Lord in the very worst way. And so God doesn't move away from us. Sin moves us away from him. So sin has a way of causing us to, to choose things that hinder that hinder our development rather than to help us. Now, you, you know that when you were a young person, when you were, when you were little, uh, when you did something wrong, the last thing that you wanted was for mom and dad to show up. You didn't want mom and dad around. Now, you love mom and dad, there's no doubt about that, but when you've done the wrong thing, I'd just rather not see mom and dad right now. And Christians are just like that with God. We know that God is not happy with our sin, and so what we do is we shut up and we stay out of God's way. And we're just like Adam. We go hide ourselves among the trees in the garden, hoping that we won't see God. But God's the very one that we need, the only one who can help us. And when you're away from God, what happens is that one sin leads to another, and then to another, and to another And God's the one that you need to help you out of that. But you're trying to avoid him. This is why the word of God says, stop doing that. Go ask for forgiveness because he's ready. He's anxious. He's willing to forgive us. He wants us to come to restore us. You don't have to be afraid of going to God. Go to him and ask for that forgiveness. Now, 1 John chapter uh, 1 and verse 9 addresses that. And this is about saved sinners, not lost sinners. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he goes on in the second chapter and he says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that's the 
John's way of saying the same thing that Paul said, don't sin. It's best for you to stay away from sin, but if it happens to you, you have Jesus. He's your advocate. He's your intercessor with the Father, so go to him, ask forgiveness, find grace to help in time of need. So these are steps. First of all, we have to find out what sin is, learn how sin develops, keep your eye on sin, do your best to avoid sinning, But if you're weak and you fall into sin, go to God and ask for his forgiveness. And you can be victorious. Uh, Peter said, God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And godliness is the goal because that's what victory in Christ looks like. In Christ, there is no sin. And that's what you want to be, without sin. And if Christ is in you, you can live without that sin. He's in you. He enables you for victory as long as you're dependent upon him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word and what we've learned tonight. We come confessing our sins. We know, Lord, that even right now there are probably things we've harbored in our lives for too long that we haven't brought to you. And we've been staying away because... Maybe subconsciously we think that uh, you're so unhappy that you won't receive us back, that you won't help us. Lord, we see from your word that that's what you want us to do. We are your children, and you want to draw us close to you and have that fellowship, to have that communication line open all of the time. And so, Lord, I pray that as your people, we would confess our sin because we know that that is the first step to getting back into the way that you want us to be, and we can leave sin behind. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to limit our opportunities to sin. Uh, Stay away from the wrong people, doing the wrong things, guarding ourselves uh, against things that we see, things that we do. And then, Lord, uh, we just pray also that uh, you would just use your Holy Spirit to help us to stay out of sin. Help us to stay in your word, to read and hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. Bless your people, Lord. We just thank you for your word and what it does for us. Bless us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.